Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode of the Serial Dynasty is sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is offering for Serial Dynasty listeners to download a free audiobook. To receive your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. The show is also sponsored in part by viewers like you. All of your donations are appreciated and help to cover the cost of creating this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. This is episode number five, and I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this episode. And thank you for all of your support in downloading the episodes, sharing on Facebook and Twitter, rating on iTunes. Once again, all of these things are letting us grow at an exceedingly fast rate. Our audience has over doubled since our last episode, and we're growing exponentially by the day. So thank you, listeners, for all of your support. For those of you that are new to the show, I want to let you know and remind all of you listeners that this podcast is listener-driven, meaning most of our content comes from thoughts and theories of listeners just like you. So if you have any thoughts and theories about the case or any questions, I encourage you to send them to me at theories at SerialDynasty.com. And once again, I want to open with an email from Mary Armstrong. She has done just that. Her subject line is, I want a Uric-appointed attorney or going buck wilds. Mary says, Hi Bob, Mary with a new email. Once again, I suck at theories, but I'm exceedingly proud of my subject lines. Keep it up, I'm so glad smart people are listening and connecting with you. Mary, thank you again for sending us that email to open up the show with, as always. Now moving along, we have a lot to cover today. As this audience has grown as fast as it has, the number of emails has grown exponentially as well. At last count, when I sat down to record this, since the last episode dropped, I had 352 emails to go through. And I have no idea how many tweets have been sent to the show. I try to respond to as many of them as I can, know at least that I do read them all. And as far as the emails go, uh, the show started with the, you know, the first episode, me having seven or eight emails to sort through. Uh, and the second show having 30 or 40 I had to sort through and filter through. Uh, the last one I had uh, a little over 100 to go through. And like I said, by this episode, I've got 352. So so for all of you listeners, I don't want any of you to feel discouraged, like you're sending emails and I'm not responding. I'm not ignoring you specifically. That's just a massive volume of emails to read. Uh, and I do want you to know that I do read every single one of them. Every one of those emails that comes in on my phone, I take a minute and I read through it. A lot of them share kind of the same subject. Uh, so one of the tasks that I have is to try to sort through those and come up with a few to read on each episode that are maybe adding new content or a new theory or something, a different spin on things to think about. Uh, and I just want you to know that just because I may not read your email, 
doesn't mean it wasn't interesting. It's just I only have so much time to fill. With today's episode, I won't be able to read as many as I normally do because uh, the Undisclosed podcast, Colin Miller, was gracious enough to interview with me. Uh, I interviewed Colin yesterday, and the hour the interview is nearly an hour long, so that is going to take up a good portion of our show today. And Colin discussed in the interview a lot of the questions and theories that were posed by emailers. So remember back to what you sent in and kind of listen for those. I, I tried to kind of guide Colin's questions along the lines of the emails that you sent in. Now, before you listen to the interview with Colin, I do want to forewarn you. The beginning of the interview has some pretty poor audio quality. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that you know I really do need to upgrade my system out here to be able to do better phone interviews. Uh, we made an attempt to start the interview on Skype. So you'll notice for about the first 20 minutes, it's clear and you can hear what's being said. Um, and most of you might not even notice. For me, I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to the sound quality. And I wasn't real happy with the quality. You'll hear a few times when Colin's speaking where there'll be some some stutters and stammers. That's not Colin. It was what I found out later was that uh, there were Internet problems in my town that day. And that's why the Internet kept cutting in and out. At about the 22-minute mark of the interview, the Internet shut completely off and disconnected us. Uh, so about that mark, you'll hear things switch over and the sound quality will get much, much better, at least coming from my side, because we ended up calling back on the phone and finishing the interview on the phone. However, then for about the first six and a half to seven minutes after we switched to the phone, uh, there was a bad connection on, sounded like Colin's end of the phone, and it's it's pretty hard to hear him. His voice is pretty distorted. Uh, I spent several hours um, last night working on trying to clean that up as best I could. I did the best I could with it. Uh, but I just want to warn you going into that that you're going to have about seven minutes where it's really hard to hear Colin. Uh, I just encourage you to push through, try to hear what he's saying. I thought about just cutting it out, but uh, he had so many great things to say in that time. Uh, I think it's worth the struggle and the fight to listen to what Colin has to say. And just know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, about seven minutes after we get onto the phone, the connection clears up. And for the last 40 minutes of the interview, it's crystal clear. You can hear us both very well. So. Uh, again, I apologize for that. It was kind of out of my control. And I, and I do want to take a moment before we begin the interview to thank Colin, not only for being willing to come on the show and interview with me, but also going through all of those technical difficulties. Um, Colin's a busy guy and, uh, very, very gracious to keep putting up with the connection problems and the phone problems. And I had to call him back a couple of times and Colin was a trooper and, and was just willing to roll right along with it. So thank you very much, Colin Miller, for not only being on the show, but putting up with all of the technical difficulties that we had. And hopefully before I do any more phone interviews uh, for the show, I'll be able to upgrade to uh, a little better system where we can get some, some clearer sound uh, coming from both ends. So without further ado, I'll begin the interview with Colin Miller from the Undisclosed Podcast and the Evidence Prof blog. Okay, we are here today with uh, the Undisclosed Podcast's Colin Miller. Thanks, Colin, for being on the show today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, um, first thing that I wanted to ask you is, uh, just to clear it up for myself and, and all the listeners, is can you tell us a little bit about your background? I mean, I know you're an attorney, but like what type of attorney and as far as that goes? Sure. I graduated from law school in 2003. After that, I worked at a litigation firm for two years. We handled all types of cases, civil, criminal, contracts, property. 
Then I worked as an appellate court attorney in New York for a little over two years. And after that, started as a law professor at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago and was there for about five years. And I've been here at South Carolina as a professor and associate dean at the University of South Carolina School of Law for the last few years. So you have some some real experience with the appellate process, being that you were working in that field for a little while then. Yeah, a little over two years, I was at the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division in Brooklyn. It was actually the busiest appellate court in the country. We handled a whole variety of cases, and it was basically reviewing what happened at the trial level, whether it be ineffective assistance of counsel claims, claims about evidence that was improperly admitted, arguments about prosecutorial misconduct. On that topic, Dave, did you ever see any ineffective assistance of counsel cases uh, win and, and get an appeal based on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a claim that's often made. It's made a lot in pro se filings, which are filings without an attorney. And so it's often something that's thrown in. It's it's rarely something that is going to be successful because usually decisions by trial counsel are chalked up to trial strategy in that an appellate court's not going to second guess decisions that could have worked to the favor or detriment of the client. This case is a bit different with Adnan because the allegation here is failure to contact an alibi witness where really what the courts have said is there's no strategy behind that. That's simply an omission or failure by the counsel. Okay. And then, um, just real briefly, cause you know, there's been, you know, questions of people's, you know, my bias and, and yours and Susan's, um, bias and as far in that regards towards the case. Um, did you have any connection with Rabia prior to Serial? No, I was just here at the law school last fall. A colleague had been listening to Serial. She told me I might be interested in it because it dealt with a lot of criminal and evidentiary issues. Based upon that, with no prior knowledge of the case, I looked at some of the appellate filings. I started listening to the podcast and independently started posting about it in my blog and doing some research in the case, but I had no connection whatsoever with Rabia or Adnan or his team. Okay, that was my next question, too, is you you weren't familiar with the case either prior to Serial. No, I hadn't heard about the case at all before being told by the colleague about it. Basically, it seems that anybody that disagrees with uh, the Adnan's guilty camp, that uh, it's because we're biased. And I think from what you're describing, yourself, me, um, you know, Susan, all of us, you know, we, we came to the position that we're in after researching a case that we knew nothing about and by the evidence came to this conclusion, uh, which is the opposite of bias as far as I'm concerned. Right. It's the same. I mean, I, I watched The Thin Blue Line when I was younger. It's one of the movies that led me to going to law school, got intrigued by that case and looked into it. I watched The Staircase, the Michael Peterson one about the death of the wife down the staircase, got interested in that case, looked into it. Sort of the same thing with this is just started listening to the podcast, found it really interesting. It dealt with a lot of issues that I deal with in class, and so decided to delve into it. So next I'd like to discuss with you um, a few things from episode four of the Undisclosed podcast. You know, there was a there was a lot of information in that podcast, the 28 days, as we walked through step by step by step what happened the 28 days uh, after uh, Heyman Lee disappeared. Or the, the first thing that I noted in there um, and that you guys also noted over and over again was that a majority of the notes were all written on February 14th. Is that, was it, is that the correct date on that? Right, February 14th. Was it all just one particular investigator that was writing notes on the 14th or were there multiple people doing that? You know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I, I think there might have been multiple people, but I, I can't really say for certain. Yeah, I thought I caught from the uh, Susan reading some of that on the podcast that there was 
a couple different detectives that all had these notes, and all the notes from interviews were all written on the 14th for interviews that happened, some of them up to almost two weeks prior. Right, we had some of those occurring as early as January 13th, and so really you're talking about notes and reports that are post-dated uh, well after the initial interview. Yeah, and that, you know, what, what that, the conclusion that that led me to was that, um, and, and it was alluded to that on Undisclosed Podcast, was that, you know, the investigators had had these conversations, and it kind of leads back to what I discussed on my last episode about, you know, the, the prior conversations with Jay, uh, that they'd been, you know, they'd gathered some information and they had had some conversations or whatever had happened. And then after they decide that Adnan's their guy, then all of a sudden they start backtracking and, and writing all those, all those notes out. Is that kind of how you took it as well? Yeah, it's strange. As I said, I worked at the appellate court, and so basically every four weeks there we would get seven case files, and they would be hundreds of thousands of pages, and they would include police interviews, trial transcripts, etc. I've never, in literally hundreds of cases, ever seen something where you have these notes from interviews taking place weeks later, and so your assumption is something that, that could certainly be valid. I don't really have a point of reference to say I've ever seen this before to try to understand exactly what was going on here. Well, I know that uh, from my experience as uh, as an arson investigator, you know, like rule number one as far as any type of investigation from uh, from the education I have on it is number rule number one is you write everything down immediately. I mean, that was one of the first things that we were taught, um, and there was there was you know like days of class where they would discuss that how. It's so easy to gather some information, days go by, and then things like confirmation bias, which I think plays a part in this, um, and, and your memory shifts, and you write it down later, and it's not accurate. So that's it, it blew me away that, that a professional investigator would hang on to something and then, and then write their notes about it weeks later. There's just no way that that can be accurate. Right, and we found numerous instances in the files of cases where they have handwritten notes followed subsequently by typed notes weeks later, and you can compare the two and see oftentimes the typed notes are quite different in intention and reading than those handwritten notes. And so you can really see how those issues of memory could come into play based upon the timing of these. Yeah, and then to me the question leads to, is it a, is it a memory issue or does it go back to some of the conspiracy and corruption that we were, we've been talking about in the, the weeks leading up to this where somewhere, somehow, someone has, has pushed the fact that Adnan Syed is the, the guilty party here and then everything is written to reflect that. It's, it seems like there's a lot of that going on to me as well. Yeah, and as you say, confirmation bias. You don't have to believe any type of overt or malicious conspiracy. It could simply be the matter of, they took these notes initially when it was more of an open investigation, and then after the fact, when Adnan has been sort of focused upon as this suspect in the case, it could be unconscious. Another thing, is, as far as this case goes as, as an investigator that frustrates me is, you know, like I said, rule number one was always uh, you know, write everything down immediately so that you don't lose track of it and you don't get caught up in confirmation bias. And rule number two was always to uh, not to lead... Uh, witnesses when you're interrogating them. And interrogating is a strong word for my line of work because, you know, I, I have to investigate every fire, whether it's an arson or whether it's an accidental fire. We still have to determine how the fire started and you have to rule out theories. And it just, it, it frustrates me to no end to listen to how they're leading all these witnesses, um, in all the recordings, especially from, uh, from episode three when you're, you're listening to how they're leading them. Right. You know, for an example, I just, we just had a, a fire two weeks ago, a, a barn fire, 
and do my initial investigation and I figure out, you know, about where I think the fire started. And then you go talk, talk to the homeowners, you know, and the question is, what did you do today? You know, you know, were, were you in the barn at all and explain to me what you did? And their answers kind of help me confirm or deny whether I thought the fire started where, where, you know, the conclusion I had come to by my, uh, initial investigation, as opposed to if you had asked them the same question, were you working over, I mean, you can convince somebody to tell you the fire started anywhere. You know, if I, I could go into them and tell them, were you working in the northwest corner of the barn? Were you working on this outlet over there? And all of a sudden they remember, oh yeah, I had something plugged in over there when in fact the fire started on the, on the east side. That's why, that's why we don't do that. I don't, I, I keep coming back to it, but that's the part that just amazes me because I know these investigators have the training to know not to do what they were doing in this case. Right, and it's the same reason why at trial, on direct examination, you can't ask leading questions. And a leading question is defined as one where the interrogator supplies the answer and the witness merely needs to respond with a yes or no. So it would be like asking someone at trial, did the defendant tell you he strangled the victim? Well, at trial, you're supplying the answer. They simply have to say yes. Well, it's the same thing with a detective when they're interrogating the witness, which is to say... You want to ask open-ended questions to make sure the witness is supplying you with their information as opposed to you're basically feeding the witness the answer that you want. Exactly. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Moving on in episode four, uh, when you guys were going over the uh, police interrogation of Jen and she was talking about her time at the bar, I had a, I had a couple of questions about that. And I I, I feel like, you know, I, I my mind's kind of going in a different direction then you know, the undisclosed teams is going as far as Jay and Jen's involvement. And so in, in episode four, when you were playing the clips about when she was being interviewed by the police and she was speaking about her, this, you know, time she spent at this bar and she had saw that, you know, Hayes, you know, that Hay was missing a news article or a, a news report about that. Um, kind of what I, what I wanted to kind of try and clear up with. Uh, with you, I have you on the line is, is I can't wrap my brain around the idea. You know, Susan had mentioned it was mentioned on the undisclosed podcast that it's possible, uh, or at least plausible maybe that Jen and Jay literally had nothing to do with this and it was completely led by, uh, they were, their testimony was completely led by the police. And, um, do, do you kind of feel that same way as, is the whole team kind of working, working from that angle or as far as even being a possibility? I don't think there's any type of really group think among the team. We all sort of have our own takes. Mine is I'm completely open to any possibility right now. I think it's possible that 
Jay was involved without Jen at all. I think it's possible Jay and Jen were both involved. I think it's possible that neither of them were involved. Obviously, we've uncovered the information about Jay talking to the state much earlier than the state has since claimed. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm completely open. I, I, I would not be surprised under any of the scenarios I mentioned before. Okay. And that, that makes it, cause I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm just, my issue with the, the theory of they had no involvement at all and this was entirely orchestrated by the police, um, is the, the thing that I keep getting hung up on is that Jen had a lawyer. You know, I could, I could see them kind of pushing Jay through this scenario and, and pushing him through this testimony. But the fact that when Jen came and she had a lawyer, it just it, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around her to make sense of the fact that a, a lawyer would advise her or allow her to incriminate herself and go down this road and create this whole story if she had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. At the same time, you have to wonder, well, if Jen was involved in the way that she said she was involved, what happened in terms of her criminal experience? Is assisting an accessory in that murder in disposing of his clothes and items used in that murder. And so you sort of wonder, you know, what exactly happened here if, if in fact she's meeting with the, uh, the state's attorney and has this attorney, what exactly happened with her case? I don't know. It makes sense that Jen had a lawyer because, at least according to some of her statements, she is helping an accomplice to the murder dispose of the clothes that he used in helping to bury the body. And so the question becomes... If she, in fact, did have that involvement, what happened regarding prospective charges against her? And so, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It, it's tough to say. Uh, we, we know she had the attorney and met with the police. Was that because she had involvement? Why was she never charged? So it's, again, one of those open-ended questions where we don't know some key information that could really tell us what her involvement was or wasn't. All right. Um Next, Colin, I have you on the phone. I, I have an email from a listener. You know, on the show, we, you know, I read emails from listeners and try to respond to them. And I got one email that somebody sent me, and it's, and it's actually, I've probably gotten close to a thousand emails in the last several weeks. And it's the only one that I've gotten, uh, that believes that Adnan is guilty. And, and he cites a, a Reddit post, and I thought it'd be a good one to go over with you because it is a, a point by point, the top ten reasons why he thinks Adnan is guilty, and I thought maybe we could go through them point by point if you've got time to do that. Sure. All right, the email is from a gentleman named Pete Berg. He says, hi, Bob. Great job on the podcast so far. I believe that after considering all the evidence, Adnan is most likely guilty. But I do enjoy listening to Undisclosed and the Serial Dynasty and pondering alternate theories. I'm curious what your thoughts are about this post from Reddit. I didn't write it myself. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, counterpoints to all ten of these points. And then he gives me a link to uh, this Reddit post. Uh, so the Reddit post says, Top 10 reasons Adnan Syed is guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt in this world, but innocent in the intergalactic multiverse. Uh, and then he always says, below are my top 10 points. And I'll start with point number one. Point number one says, statistical probability. He says, multiple studies have shown that in America, the odds that Heyman Lee or any other female murder victim are murdered by a random stranger is less than 10%. Over 90% of women murdered by men are murdered by someone they know. Of those, 60% are murdered by their intimate partner or ex-partner. 
Most often, females are killed by males in the course of an argument between the victim and the offender. By far, the leading and most reasonable explanation about what happened to Heyman Lee is that there was an argument between Adnan and Hay over her new relationship with Don that escalated into violence. Every other theory, particularly given the total lack of evidence to the contrary, stretches reasonable doubt to the breaking point. In this world... In the multiverse of worlds, Hay is killed by some random serial killer or by a drug gang or by alien abduction. You know, my first thought when I read that was, I wonder what Danita Lambert's parents think about that. Right, Jada Lambert, who we discussed on the uh, the prior episode, right? Yeah, is it is her name? I had it written down as Danita, and I don't know why. Was that a uh, middle name or something? Uh, possibly, yeah, but yeah, her name was yeah Jada Lambert, who was the Woodlawn student who was killed in 1998, and eventually Roy Davis was prosecuted for that murder. Right, and that was, and it was a similar situation, right? It was, it was one year earlier, Woodlawn student just disappeared, and then they found her body later. Right, and she had been strangled, just like him and Lane. Right, so you know that was that was my first thought. With that was all probability and statistics aside, we know for a fact that there. Are, was a serial killer that murdered a female student from Woodlawn High that was a stranger just a year before, right in that same area. Right, and also for looking at statistical probability, if you look at strangulation cases, it's I mean actually as described in the email that the vast majority of strangulation cases they're sort of heat of passion, spur of the moment type things. And so if you believe that, then you fundamentally disagree with the state's case at trial, which was that this was something planned out well in advance where there was this whole scheme of letting Jay borrow the car and the phone. So, again, if you go by statistical probability, then the scenario presented by the state is, is not at all like what the statistic would tell you. Exactly, and I agree 100% with that. As far as the statistics go, you know, I, I tried to do a quick little bit of research to try to fact-check what he had said. So I went to the Bureau of Justice Statistics.gov, uh, which is the U.S. Department of Justice, and I looked up from 1993 to 2007. It says that in 93, 40% of women were killed by an intimate partner and 45% in 2007, which doesn't doesn't go with the 90% statistic that uh, our emailer had sent. Yeah, I mean, statistics are funny things, too, because if you look at Adnan's current claim of ineffective assistance of counsel, his attorney was disbarred in the face of a record number of complaints, most of them contemporaneous to Adnan's case. And statistically, 0.08% of attorneys are disbarred. And so if you're looking at this case and saying, well, why are all these loose ends here? Was there ineffective assistance in the context of Asia McLean? Well, if we're relying solely on statistics, it seems clear Adnan's attorney is exactly the type of attorney you would expect to render ineffective assistance. Yeah, that's a great point when you compare the two. and you're, It's less than, uh, would you say, 0.08% of attorneys are disbarred? Was that the statistic right. you gave? Right, 0.08, yeah. Yeah, so it was more likely for Hay to be killed by a serial killer than it was for Christina Gutierrez to be disbarred, but that happened. Right, and it's unfortunate. I'm looking into this now, actually, a number of cases that Gutierrez handled in 1999. It really seems like right around the time she took Adnan's case and was learning about Asia is when... She had some medical issues, she had some financial issues, and it seemed like she dropped the ball not only in his case, but a number of other cases she was handling. So then, um, number two, he says, is the, the absurdity of a police conspiracy. Without a doubt, police led aspects of this case in interrogation. They had an uncooperative suspect, Jay, that they had to make cooperate. But to believe they coerced Jay's testimony in its entirety 
you have to believe they also coerced Jen's testimony as well. You have to believe that something as substantial as finding Hayes' car was hidden from her family. You have to discount incriminating cell phone evidence, most notably the Lincoln Park cell phone pings. You have to develop wild theories about how all corroborating testimony was incorrectly attributed as having occurred on January 13th, etc. Is all of this possible? Yes. We live in a multiverse, after all. Is it reasonable? No. Any reasonable outside observer can see that the odds that Jay was not involved directly in the burial, Adnan is by far the most likely perpetrator of the murder, just as any reasonable person would find Jay and probably Jen as, as an accessory after the fact. Yeah, well, again, if you look at that, I mean, this is the point entitled The Absurdity of a Police Conspiracy. I, I think that a lot of people look at this and... They take it to mean, well, this is a case where the police were just creating facts and they knew what they were doing was wrong and they targeted this innocent person. But that's that's not the way a lot of these wrongful convictions happen. It's a matter of, again, confirmation bias. The state identifies a suspect. They put the blinders on. They ignore evidence to the contrary and they hone in on someone. And so it's a matter of not necessarily creating this entire plot out of cloth. It's a matter of they have someone in Jay, and Jay is willing to enter into a plea agreement and give testimony against Adnan. They look for all the evidence they can find to confirm that. And, you know, it's mentioning here in this email, you have to believe a lot of these witnesses are wrong about January 13th. Well, I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job on the podcast of showing how a lot of these events really couldn't have happened on the 13th. And to say, for instance, there was a wrestling match on the 13th and specifically one at Randallstown when we have newspaper reports showing they played another school. Inez Butler, who's establishing this, says the wrestling match was at 630 and Randallstown had a home uh, home basketball game at 630 on the 13th and no space to have a simultaneous wrestling match and basketball game. When you really delve in, it looks like these witnesses are wrong. And again, it's not a conspiracy to say the police are trying to get people to say the 13th. It's people made mistakes and they could be misattributing events from different dates to January 13th based upon simple errors in human memory. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I, I feel like the conspiracy aspect of this, you know, I think you're exactly right. I, but in my belief at this point, I believe, you know, that they got to Jen, Jen led him to Jay. Jay gave them a story. And, you know, and I, I've talked about several times on this show, you know, I, I don't understand the why they went with went with it. One thing, I, I've read some old newspaper clippings and things about that, but from your guys' investigation... Um, it, was there a lot of pressure? Yeah, I, I read some um, some posts somewhere that it said there was a lot of pressure from the Korean community and from the community to close this case because of Jada Lambert's case from the year prior that was still open at that time. All right, we'll move forward to point number three is the incriminating cell phone pings, in particular the Leakin Park cell phone pings in the early evening. If Adnan had his phone at this time, which is what he claims, there is no reasonable explanation for these pings other than the phone was near or in Lincoln Park, which Adnan claims to have never been near. To get the phone there without Adnan's involvement involves creating scenarios that, while certainly possible in this vast multiverse, are highly unlikely in this world, and can be reasonably dismissed as improbable. That something is possible does not mean it is reasonable to assume it could have happened. It bears noting that earlier in the day, the cell phone pings do not align in a way that either Jay or Adnan's description of the morning. Very likely something else was going on. Who knows what, 
but it is just another instance of Adan lying about where he was and what he was doing. Yeah, the interesting thing about this is actually the leaking first things are some of the strongest evidences confirmation bias in the way that it's being claimed the case. Uh, I think we're talking about this with Susan a bit, and we're going to have actually a medical examiner on for the next full episode. There's no way that any Lee was buried in the apartment at the 7 o'clock hour, the 8 o'clock hour, even the 9 o'clock hour. So, the vitamin in her body was anterior within the front of the body, and her body was buried on the right side. And so, there was linking part things. They can't be consistent with Jay's story of Adam and Jay during the body. Then. So, this is really evidence that the entire narrative this state gave to the jury is incorrect, and it calls into question really the reliability of any part of this case by the prosecution. So, far from proving Adnan's guilt, it was Lincoln Hartley's in the way the state used and actually for the years of case. Yeah, and I was going to mention that, uh, the Levitian. I know that that's something. The autopsy report, that's going to be discussed in episode 5 of Undisclosed. All right, so moving on to point number 4. It says, multiple instances of Adnan lying, some of it deeply disturbing. It says, any one instance doesn't say a lot, but taken together, they paint the picture of someone who is manipulative and lacks credibility. Lying about Hay wanting to get back together with him is perhaps the most chilling. This was a lie Adnan told the school nurse that on the day the news broke that Hay's body had been found. He claimed to have spoken to Hay the night before she disappeared and told the nurse that Hay, quote, had wanted to get back together with him, that she still loved him, but that he didn't want to get back into the relationship in that manner, that they would always be friends. And he quotes as his source um, the trial testimony of the nurse uh, with a link. Um, what, do you, what do you know about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a question of... And this is a nurse who testified at the first trial, and at the second trial, she was prepared for testifying. You know, it's a question of recollection. I mean, the, the person sending the email is obviously claiming this is not online, but you can look at any number of witnesses in this case, either for the state of defense, and you can look at Jay, Jen, you can look at Debbie, you can look at virtually anyone in this case, and they give inconsistent statements. And it's difficult to say, other than personally, Jay admitting to lying, that someone's necessarily lying. It could be that, obviously, we have hearsay in the sense that someone repeating someone else's statement after the fact. Like, it's possible. I mean, uh, he certainly could have made this statement. It could be a lie. It could be that he's confused. He, there could be a, a big confusion. So that's sort of where I have difficulty in the sense of trying to interpret what Adnan is doing the various statements and saying, well, these are lies, and that proves he's guilty when, again, if you look at virtually any witness in this case, they've given inconsistent statements, and, you know, that, that's memory. That, that people, you know, maybe that's what Adnan wanted to hear, or what he recalled saying, or maybe it's a lie. And maybe the nurse that heard something. It's one of those things where you certainly could point to this as evidence of guilt, but there's plenty of innocent explanations for it. Um, and then he also goes on to say, uh, another damning lie was lying about asking Hay for a ride on the day of the murder, witnessed by two separate credible witnesses and confirmed by Adnan to a police officer the same day, lying about his car being unavailable when asking for the ride, lying about how he wasn't bothered by their breakup, lying about where he was and it not matching up with the cell tower evidence, 
uh, stealing from the community, moss donations, etc. In, in my perspective, in terms of the whole riot thing, I mean, that is, that, that's one thing that definitely troubles me about uh, non-statements, and I'm not quite sure what to make of them. Um, obviously, we have the report by ADCOP where he usually says, oh, I was supposed to get a ride, and they didn't eventually get that ride, and then we have them later saying, never yeah, that's a ride. So that's confusing. On the one hand, that's very confusing to me. I'm not sure what's going on there. On the other hand, we sort of have these various statements by Becky and what Krista has told us that Isha said where they both are consistent that Adnan did ask Kay for a ride and then she turned him down at the end of the day because something came up. And so I'm not sure why Adnan's statements don't match up with that, but my, my best theory, and I've said this since Cyril stopped airing that, that last episode, my best theory is that he did ask her for a ride and at the end of the day she told him something came up and couldn't give him a ride. And yeah, I, I, I don't know why the various statements have been given. I'm not, you know, I don't have a good explanation as to what's going on there, except for I can say uh, I'm fairly confident that she did turn him down for a ride at the end of the day. Okay. And now to be clear, did he, he's never changed any statements about whether he actually received a ride, right? He's never said that he actually took a ride from her. Yeah, and it's, it's, again, one of those things, too, if you look to Adcock's report, it's one of those things written well after the fact, and so, you know, it's tough to say. Did he, in fact, tell Adcock that he had asked for a ride? Uh, what exactly did he tell O'Shea later? Um, and then what exactly did he interpret as a ride? Uh, so we know from Becky, Debbie, and I believe Stephanie that both before and after they broke up, Hay would frequently give Adnan a ride, so to speak, from school to the track or track practice. And so what exactly is Adnan interpreting as a ride because maybe he's not figuring that's the type of ride they're asking about? I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's so tough to say, again, exactly what is going on uh, with those statements. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's a bit of an inconsistency there that raises questions. I always wondered, too, as far as him, him getting a ride, was track practice held somewhere other than at the campus? No, it was at the track on the campus. Um, it was a bit of a walk, and what various witnesses said was that Adnan just really didn't like to walk that much. And so frequently after school, he would get a ride from Hay, and she would take him over to the track. Um, and so that was sort of the nature of that. But yeah, it wasn't a separate location. It was just a bit of a distance from the actual physical school itself. Okay. So to me, what what I'm kind of parsing through that is, you know, he he never said he got a ride from her. He never changed on that. And nobody um, from all the credible witnesses that, you know, through your uh, the undisclosed team's research, any of the witnesses that seemed like they actually had the correct day. None of them said that he got a ride from Hay. Um, as a matter of fact, no one said that he actually got the ride from Hay. Right. There were no witnesses to that. Were there? Right. Yeah. No, it's I mean, the exact same witnesses who say he asked her for a ride are the same people who are saying that she turned him down for a ride at the end of school because she had something else to do and something had come up. So, you know, basically you have to take the good with the bad or vice versa in the sense that if they have the wrong day, then you throw everything out. And if they have the right day, it's likely he asked her for a ride and at the end of school, for whatever reason, she turned him down. Yeah, so for me, I mean, because I've had a couple people message me about that um, uh, through Twitter and you know, I've said, yeah, I've seen that there's conflicting reports about whether or not he said that he asked her for a ride. But 
to me it was one of those things that it's just a piece of evidence that's that's not relevant i mean he didn't get a ride from her they asked him if he did get a ride from her what uh you know several weeks later you know it's possible he didn't remember it's uh, you know who knows but the bottom line is we know that he didn't get in that car with her yeah well i mean that's I wish we did know, right? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'll say for, from my perspective, I'm one of those people who I think Adnan is innocent. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing on this case if I thought he were guilty, but I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, there's basically one or two scenarios the way I see it, which is I'm firmly convinced he asked for a ride that day. Scenario one is, as the witness said, something came up, she turned him down, said she had something else to do, and thereafter wanted to do that something else, and somehow, tragically, that led to her death. The other scenario is she turned him down, and thereafter, before she left school, he was later able to convince Kay to give him a ride, and you know, possibly, as we discussed before, there was an argument, and you know, he snapped, and you know, it's possible. And he is guilty of the crime. So, yeah, I'm definitely not someone who's 100% convinced of innocence. I think it's most likely that she had something else to do and turned him down. He didn't get the ride. But, no, I'm open. Again, I'm open to all possibilities here. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And uh, then moving on to number five, he says, uh, Hayes' letter and diary, which point to Adnan not accepting the breakup well and at times feeling menaced by his behavior. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Um, what I can say is I worked at Legal Aid for a summer Half of the cases I handled were I was representing people who were charged with domestic violence crimes. Uh, I can say that last year I gave testimony to a subcommittee here in South Carolina to domestic violence laws. Uh, I've been involved with a lot of these cases. And if you look at the totality of the statements by the witnesses, the diary, the letters, et cetera, it does not paint a picture of someone you would expect to commit domestic violence. Uh, certainly there are stray comments here or there, which have been taken in isolation. You could paint them a certain way, but if you look overall at what the witnesses are saying about this relationship, how Adnan acted around Hay, et cetera, it shows that this was a caring and loving person who you would not expect at all to engage in this type of behavior. It's, it's kind of like Susan had said when she was on the uh, interviewing with me a few weeks ago that you know, you can you can take any little piece of information and spin it a certain way, but I agree with you that the totality of all the other statements were that he was fine with it. He was he was moved on. He was with a new girlfriend uh, or or talking to another girl. It just it, that doesn't make sense to me either. Uh, yeah, even beyond that, when you have you have people like uh, Becky and Debbie and they're just kind of, Becky did the whole thing on Adnan's character. Even Debbie, who maybe makes a bit of a comment about I'm being a bit possessive when when she's asked about whether he was ever aggressive towards her. She basically says he was the opposite, nothing but caring. Yeah, and if you're, and I know, I mean, the, the diary for obvious reasons were not going to make that public because you don't want to 
have that being shown to everyone, all the all the thoughts of this you know, victim of this horrible crime. But even after they've broken up, even after she is moving on with Don, there, there's references there in December of 99 about, you know, how caring and sensitive Adnan is. And it, it's not at all, again, from, from working with people charged with these crimes, from doing research on this, characterization here is not at all consistent with the person you'd expect to be engaged in domestic violence. And then uh, moving on to number six, it says Adnan's attitude towards Jay is not one of someone wrongfully accused. Adnan continues to display what can only be described as a bizarre lack of emotion towards Jay. If Adnan is innocent, Jay is lying through his teeth. How could any innocent person not be enraged by this situation? In the best possible scenario, Jay was coerced into his testimony, but here we are 15 years later, and Jay continues to lie. Adnan's response that he does not want to do the same thing to Jay as has been done to him clearly doesn't make sense. Jay is not innocent in the situation. If Adnan is innocent, Jay is lying. Adnan must know this. How could such a moral person as himself not insist on finding out the truth regarding Jay? Note further that if there was not a police conspiracy, then Jay was clearly involved somehow in his beloved Hayes murder. So not only does Jay kill his beloved Hay, he puts Adnan away for life, and Adnan doesn't want to accuse him of anything. Give me a break. Yeah, in this sense, Adnan, I think, is acting completely correctly. I'm sure he's consulted with his attorney. It's the same advice I would give if I were his attorney on a post-conviction review. He can't go around throwing allegations out there about anyone else being guilty of this crime or, or making these types of statements because... That could come back to haunt him, legally speaking. And so what I see on the podcast, not only in regard to Jay, but a lot of things here is, is sort of visible restraint by Adnan, and it's completely understandable, I think, given the current status of his legal proceeding. Okay, yeah, and you know, my thoughts were that you know, none of us can predict how we would react uh, in a certain situation until we've lived through it, and then exactly what you said. You know, we, who knows? I mean, he may be you know punching the walls when nobody's around, but he— he really can't do that. He can't, you know, go lashing out of Jay right now. It's just not a good idea legally. Yeah, and I don't know what he says privately, too. I mean, that might be very different than what he says publicly. But again, he can't go out there throwing allegations as part of the podcast. And that's, I think, a lot of why he showed the restraint he showed on the show. Uh, Serial, not only with regards to Jay, but his trial attorney, et cetera, is just that he, he needs to have restraint given the nature of his legal proceeding. And so I think that, again, you can't really say how he's acting privately based upon what he said publicly. Right. And then uh, number seven says, Adnan claiming no memory of the day. This after police call inquiring if he knew her whereabouts as she did not pick up her nephew, which Adnan himself has argued was so important to Hay that he wouldn't even think of asking for a ride. Anyone who genuinely cared about Hay would have been deeply alarmed just as all our close friends and family were. And he never attempts to contact her from this point on. Yeah, I think this is a myth that might have been reinforced by Cyril that Adnan claims he has no memory of the day. I mean, we've sort of gone through and shown documents. Specifically, the, the Asia McLean note goes and it, it takes the clerk through his whole day from arriving at school to what he did during the school day to 2.15, it has the encounter with Asia and her boyfriend at the library. It has track back to 3.30. 
Uh, in other notes, Adnan remembers talking to his track coach about leading prayers for Ramadan the next night. Um, and that's track practice. He recalls being picked up by Jay, hanging out with Jay, eventually going to the mosque and talking with Bilal about, again, leading the prayers the next night. He certainly doesn't have a comprehensive memory, understandably, of every single thing he did that day. But, yeah, he certainly has uh, a recall of uh, a solid amount of the events that happened that day. So there, there's certainly not a complete lack of memory. About it. And, and again, we're also dealing with, I guess, 2014 or 2013 when he talked to Sarah. So if you look at Jay's intercept interview, if you look at Europe's intercept interview, there's a lot of things there that are just completely factually wrong and it's understandable that all these years later he might even have a lesser memory than he had back in 1999 or 2000 but yeah certainly it's not a complete lack of memory it's not like day was deleted he remembers certain events in that day he doesn't remember other events uh, and what are your thoughts on him uh not trying to contact hay afterwards yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where you could draw whatever inference you want. Um, and according to Adnan, Aisha, who was Haiti's best friend, and I think a few other people, maybe Krista, were constantly paging and were getting updates, etc. And he was hearing information. He wasn't the boyfriend at the time. He was the ex-boyfriend. Um, you know, you could say on the one hand that he wasn't doing it because he's guilty. You could say on the other hand, he wasn't doing it because he was no longer dating Hay and he was getting updates from other students, including her closest friends who were constantly getting updates about the situation. Yeah, and and I also think, too, that you can't put that inference on Adnan without putting the same on to Don. Um, and, and it was just kind of blows my mind that people are willing to give Don, the current boyfriend who was supposed to go out with her that night, a pass, but then Adnan, the ex-boyfriend, he's, he's guilty because he didn't call her. It's just odd how people make that, based on who they think is guilty, which one looks worse in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... You know, there's so many things in this case where you can look at any piece. And that's, you know, looking at all these 10, that, that there are things where, yeah, you can look at it and say, I, I think this points towards his guilt. You could look at it and say, I think it's fairly neutral. And as I've said, say with the Lincoln Park things, there's certain things where you can look at it and say, well, it's he's innocent or that the state's case is not grounded in reality. Okay. And then number eight here says, Multiple instances of both Jay and Jen telling third-party strangers about the strangulation death of Hei Min Lee before any police interrogations. And my first thought was, how does that make Adnan guilty? If anything, it makes them guilty. Right, and then we got that, that weirdness, too, where Jen says, I learned it was a strangulation from Nicole. And so it's, it's again, really tough to say what inference to draw. Um, you could say, well, it's completely confounding because Jen Shanks learned from Nicole. Uh, did Jay learn from Nicole too? So did they have first-hand knowledge? Um, you know, again, as I said, it's possible Jay and or Jen are involved and Adnan's not. Uh, it's also possible that Jay, before he made any of these statements, had met with police. We know from what we discussed that he likely met with them earlier than the police and the state had reported. So, it's tough to establish a timeline and say, well, here's a specific date when Jay or Jen said she was strangled, and we can isolate that as clearly happening before either of them had involvement with the police. Okay, and then number nine uh, says, writing, I'm going to kill on a breakup note from Hay. Assuming this was related to this world, he says, and not the multiverse of worlds, and against the background of everything else that has happened in this world, it is pretty damning. 
Right, so we have this I'm going to kill note, and you can sort of pull up anyone who's listening to this, the testimony of Aisha, who again was his best friend. And when she's testifying at trial, they're passing this note back and forth during, I believe, a health class. And there was a question about whether he was pregnant and questions about an abortion and there's sort of these, you know, some white inappropriate baseball comments about this possible pregnancy and abortion. And in that context, you can kind of see uh, Aisha herself says when she's questioned at trial, they're sort of joking around that they're, they're you know, it's, again, I'm not going to repeat the comments in the note, but you can look at the, the what they're saying back and forth. And so you could look at this note and in isolation say again, okay, well, like this is evidence that he's going to kill her. On the other hand, you can look at it and say, this is in the context of them joking back and forth about pregnancy and abortion. And in that context, the note has a very different meaning. I think mainly what we have is Aisha, and she seems trustworthy. And so, yeah, it seems like during this health class, there was a pregnancy scare, and they were sending the note back and forth during class. And this, okay. is, this is before, I think they, if I had the timeline right, this is, they get together again after this. And so, like, this is, this is not, sort of after the last breakup and she's moved on to Don, this is much earlier in the process. Yeah, that was my understanding that this happened prior to like December when they were back together again. Yeah, I think there was like a trip to like a, an amusement park or something and that that's what had led to the the letter or something. But yeah, it's it's, it's not at all related to, hey, moving on to Don and, and dumping Aden on it. It's a much earlier thing that's while the relationship is, is still in flux and moving Okay, and then their last one is number 10, uh, the Nisha call. Reasonable to believe it was a butt dial? Sure. Just as reasonable to believe it was an actual phone call in an effort to provide an alibi for his whereabouts, namely that he was with Jay, an alibi that he could no longer rely on once Jay flipped. I, I put no bearing on that Nisha call at all to me for a couple of reasons. One, I actually had that exact same phone in 1999. And I used to butt dial people all the time because the way you stored numbers in that phone was you could assign speed dial to the, the nine digits. And if you wanted to call somebody, you just hold down the number one, say, for whoever's number one for three seconds, and it would just call them. So it, it used to happen to me all the time. Also adding the fact that the only time Nisha remembers talking to Jay was when Jay was at work at the porn store, which he didn't work at until you know a few weeks after the murder. And then also the fact that you know I, I put a lot of weight into... Uh, the track coach's testimony that he remembers Adnan being at track that day if it was the day when it was a nice day in January, which had to have been January 13th from what you, uh, from what your team had discovered. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing about the track coaches when he actually testified at the trial in 2000, he says track practice starts at 4 p.m. Um, and that's strange, but actually I just had this discovery earlier this week, which is that indoor track ran till the end of February 1999. And actually, on March 3rd, 1999, the defense investigator went and talked to the track coach. And I actually posted this note on my blog. Um, we have notes that Gutierrez actually takes based upon the private investigator's interview with the track coach. And at the bottom, it says 330-430- and it's either 5 or 5.30. And so based upon that, the first statement given by Coach Sai certainly seems he's saying track starts at 3.30, and that's consistent with the statement he gave to the detectives later in March that he would arrive at track practice at 3.30. And as you say, he recalls this day in the 50s, the rare warm day in January where Adnan is on time, and they talk about completing prayers to the mosque, 
And if you look at actually the days the Adnan was in attendance at school and they had track practice, there's only three days during Ramadan that work we have. I believe it's January 7th, January 11th, and January 13th, the day that he disappears. The 7th and the 11th, the high temperature those days, I believe one day the highest in the 20s, the other day the highest in the 30s, and the 13th is when it's in the 50s. And so that says really two things to me. One, the two initial statements given by Sai in 1999, right after the end of indoor track practice that year, he's saying track starts at 3.30, Adnan's on time. And I've actually, the news to call you, I mean, it could be a bad call. That is something, though, that has always troubled me, despite the fact that it's likely not the call that you should have a trial. But not at this point, I think, preponderance of the evidence shows Adnan was on time at 3.30 at track practice on January 13th, and therefore that would rule out the Nisha call as something that's incriminating for him. Right, and to me, maybe one of those three things um, in and of itself might not be enough to rule it out, but like you said, the preponderance of the evidence, I mean, the how easy it was to butt dial with that phone, the fact that we... We're, you know, we have fairly fairly good evidence stating that he was at track practice on time at 3.30 and the fact that uh, Jay wasn't working at the video store at that point. So when you put all three of those together, it, for me, as I've been going through kind of my investigation with this, like that's, okay, that one, just move it aside. That's That one doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and plus the fact, if we look at Adnan's call log, there's no other school day when he calls Nisha before 7 o'clock. And so we have weekend calls, we have night calls, but literally we have this one outlier, this one aberration that at 3.32 on a school day, there's a call from himself on Misha, but there are several other calls he made her, and again, none of them occur during the afternoon on a school day. Right, so it would that would have been extremely out of the ordinary, especially if you consider that the state's narrative is that he had just murdered someone and then decides to just to call this girl and chit-chat. None of that makes sense to me. Right, and it's another one of those things like the Lincoln Park things where you can see that the state's case is not kind of the reality. Um, despite all the track stuff, despite the possibility of a butt dial, I'm still, again, amenable to the fact that it's possible that Adnan did have the cell phone and call her. But if he did, again, it's not that call described by Nisha and Jay. And that's, that's yet again that, I mean, obviously Nisha could just be mistaken and she's, or not even mistaken, she's recalling the call that's later. She never said it's January 13th, but clearly Jay is saying, I remember being put on the phone by Adnan on January 13th and talking to this girl from Silver Spring. And yet again, that's that's them trying to create this narrative that has no connection to reality. If in fact Adnan did call Nisha on the 13th, that's not the call that she was describing. And it is the call that the state's trying to make into this call where Jay was put on the phone. Okay, well, there's our our uh, fair and balanced approach. There was some, you know, get, getting some slack for not having any uh, odd nod might be guilty content on the show, and that's the only email we got, and we went through it. And I appreciate you going through it with me. Um, if if you got a minute, I've got one more quick one uh, to go through with you that has a couple points like that, but much much shorter than that one. Sure. Okay, this one is from uh, Megan. Uh, who we've actually heard from before on the show. Her Twitter handle is smartassy 534 She just says, Hey, Bob, killer episode again. I don't have a theory for you, just questions. In my last email, I threw out a random theory that my fiancé and I had entertained for a moment. But I do have some serious thoughts this time. 
First off, it never occurred to me that Yura could ultimately be the puppet master behind all of this. I really didn't even question him until the episode of Serial where Jay's pro bono attorney was brought to light. Shady business for sure. I tried to do some digging on my own, but I just keep running into circles. So here are my questions. Number one, how many cases did Yurik have back in 99? More so, how many cases in that surrounding couple of years did he have? Uh, and I don't know, I've been trying to dig up some of this information and I'm, I'm getting nowhere with it. Do you, do you happen to know any of those? Yeah, I wish I did. I mean, I know Yurik was in an narcotics unit, and so he primarily did drug cases as opposed to homicide cases. And so I imagine he had a good number of drug cases back in 1999. As far as I know, there's not really a database where you can look up the cases that a particular prosecutor handled. I can, for instance, with Gutierrez, the defense counsel, I have been doing this look to the cases she handled for comparison's sake, but... There's not really, as far as I know, public information where you can say, well, beyond stray stories or appellate court opinions, here are cases where Europe is actually involved. Do you know, um, I, I have been doing some research, found that uh, he no longer works for the state as of, I think it was 2003. Uh, do, do you have any idea why he's not working for the state anymore? Did he just decide to start his own practice or any ideas there? Uh, yeah, it's impossible to tell. Uh, it's he could have left because he wanted to start his own practice. There could have been political issues. There could have been performance issues. So it's impossible to say whether it was his choice or not and, and why exactly he had decided to start his own practice. Okay. And then she has, number two, how many of these cases involve the same detectives as Adnan's case, which I think we you know, we can't answer because we don't have the list. Uh, and then number three, it's clear that there's some kind of corruption in Yurik's procedures. Do you think the Innocent Project will focus on past and present Yurik cases too? Just think, Adnan might not be the only innocent person sitting behind bars because of this man. Food for thought, smartassy 534. And that that's kind of an angle that, that I'm taking on, on this right now is not only from what happened in Adnan's case, but seeing what happened in Adnan's case, you know, what I'm trying to figure out is, is it possible that this has happened to anybody else? And if York really was the puppet master behind all of it, uh, do you know um, if you? I, I know that you guys have teased that at some future episode we're going to hear from the Innocence Project or hear about what they're doing. Uh, do you happen to know if they're digging into any of this stuff with York? Yeah, I mean, I have really no idea. Um, besides his involvement in Adnan's case, I really have no idea of what he's done in other cases, and so yeah, I can't really speak to that. It seems to be kind of a dead end, and and I guess this, you know, with this show being so listener based, and a lot of our content and information comes from our listeners, I guess I'd I'll throw that out to any of any of you that are listening to this. If anybody does have any kind of resources or content or or contact or uh, ability to research some of that, please shoot me an email at the theories at serialdynasty dot com email address, and maybe help us get to the bottom of some of that. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Other couple of real quick questions for you, then I'll let you go. I know we've been on for a long time and had all kinds of technical difficulties during this. Um, one quick question I had was, I caught somewhere in Serial, then from a few tweets and things like that going on, uh, was 
Don's dad a uh, police officer or in law enforcement? No, he was not. That was uh, maybe a, a misconception. I don't know if it was on serial itself or people thought that. There's someone with the same last name who is the son of a police officer, but Don was not the son of a police officer. Okay. And then the only other question I had that I wanted to kind of clear up from looking at the documents on the um, on the undisclosed website when I was looking at the time cards, I just had a little bit of confusion. It shows two time cards. One of them says from January 9th, 2013. One says January 16th. Are those are those dates, is that the uh, ending of the pay period or the beginning? Uh, you know, in all honesty, that's Susan's been doing this stuff for the time cards. I actually haven't really looked at that, so I I, I have no idea of Okay. I yeah. those time cards. I haven't personally looked at them myself. I, I assume that they're the they're the beginning because I when I looked at the one that said one sixteen, assuming that was the end, that showed him off on that Wednesday, which was confusing. Mm-hmm. So I assume it went the other way. Just didn't know if you had any light on that. Um, and then last thing that I wanted to chat with you about before we let you go is um, uh, just a quick breakdown of the court case and what we can expect, um, just kind of in layman terms for us as far as. Uh, the ruling that we just got last week, uh, and I know you explained and undisclosed that, uh, now that, that is sending the case back down to the, the circuit court. Is that correct? Right. That hearing or, or what are the outcomes of that hearing? Is, is that, that's not an appeal, correct? That's, that's, uh, a, a hearing to decide if he can move forward with an appeal. Okay. So basically he, filed for post-conviction relief based upon ineffective assistance of counsel, and he was denied that by the circuit court, which is, in effect, the trial court at the appellate level. He then appealed to the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland, and what the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland has now said is, we can't decide his appeal without giving him the chance to possibly present the testimony of Agent McLean and other evidence. So they sent the case back down to the circuit court so that he can move to reopen his post-conviction proceeding have Asia testify and possibly present other evidence. So at this point, the circuit court could either deny the motion to reopen, which means we're just back at the Court of Special Appeals with nothing new happening, or more likely, they'll grant his petition to reopen, Asia can testify, and at that point, the circuit court can either give him relief or deny relief. In either case, the losing party is going to have that appeal to the Court of Special Appeals. And so basically, the circuit court can hear Agent McLean and say, oh, she's credible, and it was ineffective assistance for Gutierrez not to contact her, and he deserves a new trial. Or they could say her testimony doesn't make a difference, or she's not credible, which means he doesn't get a new trial, but again, he has that appeal already existing in the Court of Special Appeals. Okay, so now when that goes back down, uh, this next step, um, Asia will be able to testify. Is that kind of like almost like a do-over from the initial uh, appeal that he had uh, where you know, he he tried it there, they denied, he appealed, and then the judge sent it back? Is that, Am I understanding that right, or is this something different? Well, basically what it is is he had his post-conviction review proceeding a few years ago, and Asia didn't testify, and Yurik testified. She called me and said she only wrote her affidavit under pressure from the family. So basically, at this point, the Court of Special Appeals has remanded it back to the circuit court based upon her allegations in her new affidavit about her standing by her prior affidavit and seeing him in the library on January 13th. And so at this point, the circuit court has to decide, is it in the interest of justice to now have Asia testify? Because she didn't testify before, 
and it's possible her lack of testimony affected the outcome of the case. And so if she is allowed to testify, the question is, does that then change the prior outcome? Okay, now, so best case scenario, how long could this process take, or how long is it likely to take? I mean, I know you said that whatever that decision is, either party is going to appeal it, and um, if, if, say, best case scenario, at the end of the day, Adnan ends up out of prison, you know, could that be six months from now, six years from now? It's likely to be more a matter of years than months because even if the state loses, this would be appealed probably all the way up to the Court of Appeals in Maryland. And recently, some things seem to have been expedited, but you can sort of look at the history of this case and similar cases. It seems like we're probably at least a few months out from Asia possibly being allowed to testify. Probably another few months before the circuit court gives its new opinion. Then we would have to have all the briefing and everything for the appeal back to the Court of Special Appeals. Then again, several months before they decide. Then again, we have an appeal to the Court of Appeals. And so it's sort of the process, it's going to take a while. It's not sort of the 60-minute justice you see on something like Law & Order. It's something that's going to be protracted likely over the course of a couple of years. Okay, so yeah, we're we're going to be in this for a long haul to, to see it through. Yeah, most likely. All right. Well, thank you, Colin. I really appreciate you uh, calling in. I know I've, I've between the, the Skype call and the phone call, I've had you on the phone for over an hour. And, and uh, I appreciate you putting up with all of our technical difficulties and, and calling in. And hopefully as things move along, maybe we can chat with you again sometime. All right. No problem. Okay. Thanks, Colin. Take care. All right. Have a good day. You too. All right, I hope Colin's interview gave a lot of you some answers to some of the questions that you've been emailing. I received a lot of emails with questions about a lot of the things that he spoke about. So hopefully that answers some of your questions. And um, again, I want to thank Colin Miller for taking the time to interview with me. I know that he's given me a lot to think about, and hopefully he's given you guys a lot to think about as well. Now I want to close the show with reading a few emails. And the first couple were in response to last week's episode for the Are You Scared? You Should Be episode. During the show last week, I made mention of Jen being arrested with an Anthony Wilds and made mention of the fact that I wasn't quite sure who Anthony was. Uh, and a lot of these things, listeners understand that I, I know the resources are out there to get to them. I'm just swamped and buried. Like I said, in four days' time since the episode dropped, I've had 352 emails to go through, thousands of tweets, uh, also still my full-time job and family. So I've got like this list and stack of stuff trying to get to. But one of the things that is so great about this podcast being listener-driven is that you know I can kind of throw those assignments out to the thousands of you, and hopefully some of you can track down those answers and cite your sources for me. Um, so when I did ask about Anthony Wilds, uh, I want to thank Jen Gacy, who took the time to look that up through classmates.com and a few other sources she sent to me. And she was able to confirm that Anthony is Jay's brother. He was named after their father, who was named Anthony and goes by Tony. So thank you, Jen, for answering that question. That saved me a little time from having to chase that down. Now, my next email comes from a James Foucher. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. He is an attorney out of Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, in response to my last episode... James writes, Bob, great podcast. I am listening to your fourth episode right now, and I need to comment on something. In response to your listener's question about Asia changing her mind, you said she did not change her mind. Rather, Kevin Urich lied about their phone call. Why do you assume it is Urich who is lying about this phone call rather than Asia? 
It is Asia who chose to contact the prosecutor rather than Justin Brown after she was contacted. This tells me that she has some doubt as to whether she saw Adnan Syed at the library on January 13, 1999. She did not want to testify at the hearing and let a murderer go free. I imagine that Yurik did tell her that the evidence was strong and that Adnan was guilty. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. He did get a conviction after all. I am much more inclined to believe that the Asia Yurik phone call is somewhere in between the two stories they are telling. James Faucher, Greensboro, North Carolina. James and I emailed back and forth a little bit, and this was my response to him. My assumption is based on this. What does Asia have to gain by lying? I don't think she questions her memory. I believe, like you said, Yurik told her that the evidence was strong and she should probably stay out of it. I'm sure she trusted him, after all, as a prosecutor. Now ask yourself, what does Yurik have to gain by lying? Or more importantly, what does he have to lose? Asia's testimony would have destroyed his timeline. A new trial would surely reveal evidence that would destroy this case that he built. For what it's worth, that's where I'm coming from. Thank you for the email. Now what I'm getting at by that, I think the last thing in the world that Kevin Yurik wants is a new trial. A completely new trial will allow Syed's legal team to present new evidence. All of the evidence that has been discovered since the trial back in 2000. Can you imagine Yurik, Ritz, McGillivary sitting on the stand, listening to the tap, tap, tap? Can you imagine them sitting there with a good defense attorney, smashing Jay's timeline, starting from his interviews with the police officers and how that story changed to match the timeline given by the cell phone records? How his locations changed to match the cell tower location data, and it changed when the police officers realized that they had made a mistake. They would not only rip that case apart and free Adnan, but there would be serious questions of misconduct on the prosecutor side as well as on the detective side as far as how that investigation and trial went down. So the last thing in the world Yurik wants is a new trial. So again, in this situation, will any of us ever really know for sure which one of them is lying? No, but for me, again, it's a question of motive. Asia has no motive to lie. Yurik has a huge motive to lie. Now, while we're on the subject of Kevin Yurik, I did mention briefly in the interview with Colin Miller that I was unable to trace down a case list for him while he was a prosecutor. He was only a prosecutor until 2003, and then he's left and he has his own private practice now. Now, on a side note, uh, just for you listeners to know, because I've had several questions about this, I did send Kevin Yurick an email. I invited him to be on the podcast to interview to give his side of the story. I was very straightforward with him. I told him that I know that he really wants nothing to do with me. And to be clear, I am not a fan of his. But I really feel strongly that as this show moves forward, you know, and we're throwing thoughts and theories out there. Some of them are very factual. Some of them are just speculation. Uh, but these are real people we're dealing with. So what I'm trying to do is anytime that we're throwing negative ideas out about a human being, at least give them the opportunity to speak their mind. Now, I, I do not think that Kevin Yurick is going to come on the show. I would love it if he did. Uh, I have not received a response back from him. Uh, but I do just want all of you listeners to know that I, I have made an effort to contact him, to give him an opportunity to defend himself on the show if he chooses to do so. Now, in regards to Kevin Yurick, I mentioned briefly during the interview with Colin that I've been trying really hard. I, I really want to chase down that angle and and check under every stone in regards to Yurik. And what I've been attempting to do with absolutely no luck, and Colin mentioned that he's been trying to do it too, is to get a list of cases that Kevin Yurik has worked on 
while he was a prosecutor in Baltimore. Now, he was only a prosecutor there until 2003, and he's left and went to his own practice. I don't know that there are any online resources to track down that information, but if any of you possibly live in the Baltimore area or involved in the legal system or the county or the state in the Baltimore area, if you have access to those types of records or have a method for us to search that out, please send me an email to theories at SerialDynasty.com so we can chase down that angle. I want to cross-reference cases that Kevin Yurk prosecuted where Anna Benaroya was also involved. So if anybody has an ability to do any of that, I would really appreciate it. And I think the best tool that we have for that is tens of thousands of listeners that we have out there that all have their own backgrounds and own walks of life. Hopefully some of you out there have the ability to trace down that information. And then thirdly, I want to try and cross-reference that with cases where Ritz and or McGillivary were the detectives in the case. So if we can kind of start to narrow that down and see if there are any other times where those paths crossed, then I want to start investigating those particular cases and see if there's any other situation similar to Adnan Syed's case out there on that. Now, moving forward, I have had lots of emails um, asking about Stephanie. I keep getting lots of, why is nobody talking about Stephanie? What's going on with Stephanie? And I, I can't read them all in the air. I apologize for that. There's just too many of them. Uh, but I did want to just briefly respond to that. Um, number one, I haven't had time to really dig into Stephanie yet. Um, and number two, personally, from what I know so far, I don't think there's much of a link there as far as with the case. I mean, from what I understand, you know, after the court case, you know, her and Jay are not together anymore. She doesn't talk about it. I believe it was Stephanie who one of her friends on Syria was saying how she just really won't speak about it. And who knows what that means. Um, but the other reason for not investigating Stephanie on this show is the fact that when we're investigating a case that happened over 15 years ago, we don't have a lot to go on. We're left with whatever notes or documentation we have from the investigators back in 1999. So in a nutshell, if the detectives didn't investigate Stephanie or the detectives didn't document an investigation of Stephanie, then we really have nothing to research other than possibly just speaking to Stephanie and asking her about what went on, which I personally won't do. I believe at this point, unless I see evidence to lead me otherwise, I believe she was innocent in this, and I don't want to go digging skeletons out of an innocent person's closet that has shown no interest in being involved in this. If we find some evidence along the way that show that maybe there's a reason to, that's one thing, but at this point, I don't see any reason to do that, nor do I have the resources to do it, and... I just don't think there's any documentation out there to even look at. Now I want to throw a quick kind of shout out to someone who goes by Bronze Condor. Bronze Condor has been very active on the Serial Dynasty Twitter feed. He sent me a couple of emails and he's working on a theory that parallels uh, Yurik's actions and Christina Gutierrez's actions. Uh, And Bronze, I just want to let you know that I'm seeing what you have coming through. I'm printing them off. I'm putting them in a pile. But quite honestly, I just haven't had the time. And what you're talking about is a very in-depth study. And I just haven't had the time to commit yet at this point to read through all of that to come to any decent conclusion. So I just did want to let you know that I'm I'm getting your correspondences. And it's something that it's on my stack of stuff to get to. But I just haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, But what impresses me is the amount of outside-the-box thinking that you're doing on this. And so I do appreciate all the contact, and hopefully at some point we'll be able to address it on the show. Okay, so the last email I want to read is from a listener named Jess. Jess says, Hey, Bob, I wrote you a quick note a little earlier, but then I started looking at documents. 
then she gives a link to the Undisclosed Podcast document site uh, that has the chronology PDFs that show the cell phone records and the chronology used uh, with Jay's testimony or during the investigation. She says, and I had a breakthrough. I wasn't ready to write Jay out of the story, but I am now. If we take Jay and Adnan's word that Jay had the cell phone while Adnan was at school in practice, there was no time for him to murder anyone. There is hardly more than a 15-minute gap in calls. When would Jay have had the opportunity to find and murder Hay? Now, I've never murdered anyone before, but it seems he would have needed to put the phone down for more than 15 minutes to kill her and at least move the body somewhere. There is one gap of 30 minutes at 427 to 458, but I think this is more of a coincidence than a time when Jay was murdering Hay. Jay was so busy playing with Adnan's phone, he didn't have time to kill anyone. This brings me back to Don. I think he paged Hay and asked her to come meet him. I think he is the something that came up and prevented Hay from giving Adnan a ride. I think the time card was fabricated, and even his break was made up, so he looked busy during the supposed time of Hay's death at 2.30. And where was he that night? If Hay was supposed to meet up with him after her work shift, shouldn't he have been near a phone or just at home waiting for her? Why was he unavailable when detectives first tried to get a hold of him? But they do speak with him at 1.30 a.m. What kind of time is that? Even the wording of the report is strange. Quote, it should be noted that I spoke to Don on 114.99 at 01.30. Seems entirely plausible that he murdered Hay somewhere, left her there for 8 to 12 hours, went back out later to bury her, and was home by 1.30 a.m. But no stranger a theory than any other. Thank you for reading. Thank you, Jess, for that email. You are the email of the day. This is the one I'm going to try and really walk through here for a few moments before we close the show out. First thing I did to respond to this is I did print out the cell phone chronology from the Undisclosed website. Now, the first place that I went to was the time that I believe, based on my theory, of when Heyman Lee was murdered, which I believe would have to be between 2.45 and 3.15, or at least that that's when she was abducted. And I believe she had to be murdered shortly thereafter. And I'll explain that here in just a moment why I believe that. So looking through the phone records, uh, there was an incoming call at 12.43 p.m. that lasted 24 seconds. Then one hour and 53 minutes lapsed. At 2.36 p.m., there was an incoming call that was five seconds. Now this is what the prosecution says is the come get me call from Best Buy. Now one thing I noticed right away from this, and I know we're way, way, way past the point of thinking that that was the come get me call at 2.36 but I found it really interesting that this is a five-second phone call. Five seconds. In five seconds, according to the prosecution, Adnan supposedly calls Jay. Jay answers the phone, and he says, what did, what did Jay say? That bitch is dead. Come get me. I'm at Best Buy. Now, I highly doubt that a conversation, even that was probably right at five seconds. But that five seconds counts the second he picks the phone up. So, hello, there's a second and a half. Hey, there's another second. You see what I mean? There's no way that conversation would have happened in five seconds. But anyway, I digress. Moving forward. So 2.36, there's a call, incoming call for five seconds. Now, the next incoming call is at 3.15 p.m. for 20 seconds. So that's a 39-minute gap between the 2.36 p.m. call and the 3.15 p.m. call. Now, the 2.36 p.m. call is, again, five seconds incoming I'm guessing that's a call that just went unanswered. 3.15 p.m. was a 20-second call. Possibly that one also went unanswered. Now you see six minutes later at 3.21 p.m., Jay calls Jen. Now when I'm looking at these, this is what I'm thinking. Okay, who knows what that 2.36 p.m. call is? 
Maybe it's Jen calling Jay on the phone. We don't know. It just says incoming. 3.15, it looks like to me possibly another unanswered call. Or if it was an answered call, it was very short, 20 seconds. Now, that could easily have been a call that went to voicemail and was left unanswered. And you, you look at these times and think about how long of conversations you have with people. I mean, there's all these 28 seconds, 21 seconds, 5 seconds, 2 seconds. I don't see these as actually being conversations. So here's a possibility, and it's just speculation. Someone tries to call at 2.36 p.m. It's 5 seconds, so it's not answered and no voicemail left. If it was answered, it was extremely, extremely brief. Now, I'm pretty well convinced that Hay left the school between 2.45 and 3 p.m. So let's say Hay leaves the school at 3 o'clock, which is our best account, best we could tell by all of the witnesses. 15 minutes later, there's an incoming call. It's 20 seconds. And we don't know what that is. That could have been an unanswered call. It could have been a very short call. But my theory is that Hay had already been abducted at that time and was possibly in the process of being killed right at that moment because she was supposed to pick up her family member at 3.15. We know she didn't get there at 3.15, so she had to have been abducted before that. So it's very possible this call came in during a struggle, possibly didn't get answered, went to voicemail. That may explain the 20 seconds. Then six minutes later, Jay calls Jen at home. That's a 42-second conversation. That conversation may very well have been the call to Jen, letting her know that Jay had killed Hay. Or it could have been a call to Jen's brother, Mark. Because one of the theories that I'm entertaining, as speculation, of course, is that Hay came across Jay and Jen together, busted them out, and one or both of them killed her in an attempt to stop her. Maybe it wasn't on purpose. Maybe it was a struggle. Maybe it was them grabbing her, telling her not to go, not to tell Stephanie. I don't know. And again, I want to make clear it's all speculation, but that's kind of the thought that still makes sense in my mind and has not been debunked. So maybe that calls to Brother Mark saying, hey, get over here. We need to get this car. I don't know. Or maybe it is just a call to Jen. Either way, and I know I'm kind of all over the place here, so I'm going to try to make this a little more linear here. The 2.36 call means nothing. Who knows? Five seconds, most likely an unanswered call. The 3.15 call that's 20 seconds, I believe, is a call that went to voicemail, and it happened during the struggle. Six minutes later at 3.21, Jay calls either Jen or Mark for 42 seconds. Now then, 11 minutes after that is the Nisha call, which is 2 minutes and 22 seconds. Now, we discussed the Nisha call in detail with Colin Miller, so I'm not going to go over all the reasons why I don't believe that was a call that Adnan made and that I do believe it was a butt dial. But as this plays into my theory, why would there be a butt dial right then at 3.32 that continues to ring and go unnoticed for 2 minutes and 22 seconds? That would have to be right in line with the time that Hay's body would have been being moved. Now, Hay was not a big person, but if anybody's ever tried to pick up a human being uh, that is, and I apologize for the term, dead weight, it's a struggle, even with two people. Now, if that phone is in, say, Jay's pocket, and they're in the process of moving a body, that would explain, one, how an uncomfortable bend move would have caused the butt dial to happen. Like I mentioned in the interview, those Nokia phones, if you just barely held down one of the buttons for three seconds, it would call someone. But why would it go unnoticed, ringing and ringing and ringing for two minutes and 22 seconds? Possibly because your hands are full of a dead body moving them somewhere else. So that is my response to that email, and that is also my best guess at a theory at this point. Based on those phone records, that's 
personally what I think happened. I do not know about Jen's exact direct involvement. I believe wholeheartedly that Jay was directly involved. Um, and my, my new train of thought right now, after digging into those phone records more detailed based on this email from Jess, I really started taking a closer look and I really think that that is a plausible theory. I don't know that that's fact. I don't have proof of that right now, but as an investigator looking at this, that is the most plausible theory that I would be investigating if I was a detective back in 1999. That's where I would be trying to track evidence. That's the theory I'd be trying to disprove. And from what I found from all the evidence that's available, I have not seen anything that would disprove that theory at this point. And briefly getting back to why I believe that Hay was killed between 3 and 3.15, or at least abducted during that time. Number one, of course, is the pickup of her family member at 3.15 that she missed. She was at school until about 3, from the best we can figure from witness statements. And also the information that will be spoken about in depth in Episode 5 of the Undisclosed Podcast, the lividity in the body. Um, and it was kind of hard to hear Colin when I was talking about it. Uh, but essentially, in short, the autopsy report shows that Heyman Lee was laying completely flat face down for a period of 8 to 12 hours after her death because of the lividity on the front anterior side of her body. She was buried on her right side. Now, we have a, a window of time where we kind of know when things happen. We know that the body wasn't buried at 7 o'clock because if she was murdered at 3 by 7 o'clock, four hours, lividity would have not set in yet. It takes six to eight hours. Six is a minimum, usually about eight hours for lividity to start to set in. So there's no way she was buried at 7 o'clock at night. So let's say my theory's right. She was murdered between 3 and 3.15. There was a struggle. There was a butt dial that happened during the struggle of moving her body. Her body was left laying somewhere flat, not in the back of a Nissan Sentra, somewhere flat. Now, that doesn't mean that she could not have never been in the Nissan. Understand that. She could have been put into the Nissan, driven somewhere else, taken out, and laid out. I mean, it, and we have no idea where that would be. But we know that probably within, you know, within an hour or two, she was out of that Nissan and she was laying flat somewhere. And she laid that way for a minimum of eight hours. So take that eight hours from three o'clock up until midnight. And then she's taken out and buried. That story makes much more sense. We also know that the storm didn't come in. The major ice storm didn't come in until about 3 o'clock in the morning. So this timeline completely works. If she was killed between 3 and 3.15, she was laid flat somewhere for 8 or 9 hours or 10 hours. Then after dark, whoever killed her took her back out to Lincoln Park, hauled her body out, and buried her. It couldn't be much past that for a couple of reasons because of the fact that A... The ice storm rolled in a couple hours after that, and B, at about 24 hours, rigor mortis is going to set in, and you can't bend or move the body at that point. So as we move on from here, what's happening is we're getting more and more information. We're involving tens of thousands of people in this investigation through this podcast. This is a medium where we can get different perspectives from thousands of people in so many ways. And it's not necessarily generating new theories. For me, what it's doing is it's honing in my theories. It's taking a very broad theory and it's narrowing it down. That email from Jess was a perfect example of that. Her email caused me to look deeper at those cell phone records and really think them through. And it's honed in my theory and made it just a little bit closer to concrete from where it was before. 
We need to keep digging, people. We need resources. We need all of you. Keep those wheels turning. Keep those thoughts coming. Keep sending them in. All of you have different skill sets and research. Let's all put our heads together and let's figure out who killed Heyman Lee. Our theme music for the Serial Dynasty is provided by Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music. Funding for the show comes from listeners like you. If any of you listeners out there have the desire and the means to help out with the show, you can contribute to funding this show by going to SerialDynasty.com and just clicking the donate button. And once again, a great way to help this show out that's free for you is to go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Uh, by following that link, you can download a free audiobook. It doesn't cost you anything, and it does help us out quite a bit when you listeners do that. Keep sending me your tweets at Serial Dynasty. And most importantly, keep sending those thoughts and theories in to theories at SerialDynasty.com. I want to give a special thanks one more time to Mr. Colin Miller. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today and putting up with all of our technical difficulties. And all of you listeners, don't forget to download the Undisclosed Podcast, Episode 4 Addendum, that should drop tomorrow, Monday at 6 p.m. And until next time, this has been the Serial Dynasty Podcast. Podcast.